0: Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here on this Tuesday. And we pray, as we do every time we gather, that your Holy Spirit, really particularly today, will move among us as we come to a very difficult, very challenging passage. And one that calls for deep humility on our part. And um, help us, remind us that uh, we're reading a letter written 2,000 Years ago, in a world very different from our own, uh, by a man we have not met, and writing in reply to letters we have not read. So, let, let all that um, sort of guide us as we go through this. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to... First of all, Patty and I are back. Well, you can tell we're back. But we had a wonderful time on Staten Island. So we flew up on Friday. We finally get there. We get to the hotel, a very modest little Fairfield Inn. They don't have much of hotels in Staten Island, but we like modest anyway. But it was, kind of, it was nice, and it was clean, and it was new. And uh, so we asked the little manager guy where we might go get a bite to eat, and he suggested Gino's de La Monte for pizza. So we went there. And we'd sit down, and we order a couple glasses of wine, and then... <sighs> They bring us some hot bread and tried to resist it. Couldn't really resist all that. Then we got a, what was it, tomato and mozzarella on a plate. Shouldn't have done that. Because when they bring the cheese pizza, it looks like this. It is 18 inches of glorious, glorious pizza. I don't know why people down here can't make pizza like this. It It was like a different food category. So, sadly, we could only eat half of it, because this, this is dinner for four. We each, each of us ate two slices, and probably left some. And so we took the other half back to the hotel manager, Joe, a young guy, and he was quite pleased to get some pizza from Gino's. So that was good. So the next day, we went to the reunion, found our way there at the flagship brewery down on the water. And this was Patty's group that, you know, they were all, these were all eighth graders who graduated eighth grade from st patrick's school which was the school attached to st patrick's church on staten island and and they all graduated in 1972 are these only 72ers are there 70 these are only 72ers because there were actually two said the 73ers were there too helping to share the tab i guess so yeah so it was fun we had a good time um i i got to meet a lot of the people that, Kat, that um, uh, Patty grew up with, and because and they all, so many of them lived right in the same, they were all living and walking distance of each other, and the next day Patty took me down and said, "Oh, this is my house, and this was Helen's house, and this was Camille's house, and on and on and on, all around in little Richmond town, um, historic Richmond town. Then, well before that actually, we had gone to Mass at St. Patrick's. So I went to a Catholic Mass on, um, on, on Sunday. It was a lovely church, not big, but packed. That was very encouraging, I thought, because they had Masses at 8, 10, and 12. Being a rather silly girl, Patty asked me Saturday night if we should try to make the 10 o'clock Mass. I said, are you kidding? <coughs> so we really ran to make the 12 o'clock Mass. <laughs> so we got there, and we had Mass, and I think when I, in my class on Sunday, when we're talking about the Reformation, I'm going to share a few thoughts I had, because I, I did the Catholic mass on, mass on Sunday, and the next day was the Thanksgiving service for Queen Elizabeth, right, who died case you haven't heard. That's a joke. Okay, so <laughs> not a good one, but I can help myself. So it which was just a beautiful service, very much like an Episcopal service that I grew up in because it's, 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 an, it's an Anglican. It was a Church of England service, which will be an entree to continue to explore the Reformation and really with the goal of understanding how we Methodists came to be and why are there so many Methodist denominations in the world. Um, but it was, it was great. It was, it was great, great fun, and we got back late yesterday afternoon, and God, find our car was where we left it. And you know where our car took us? Somebody here knows where our car took glorious. us. Glorious. Of course it did. We didn't even have to tell it to. <laughs> it just took
1: us to Glorious.
0: OK, enough of that. Yes, love..
1: Sunday night at the hotel, we were, like, we just didn't feel like getting dressed and going out again. So we had that Gino's pizza deliver that safe pie to the hotel. Yeah. So yeah,
0: we, we had that big pie twice. It was, like I said, it was, what uh, now, there are probably 500 calories in every bite, <laughs> much less slice. But it was good, I'll tell you that. It was good. So, okay. Well, friends, we are in... First corinthians eleven and it really this section really begins in the second verse, right well yeah second verse it's a it's another one of those places where the verse and chapters chosen by those two English dudes eight hundred years ago really isn't quite right um, so um eleven verse two begins an, a new section, and it's a very very difficult section and last week we talked about hairdress and hairstyle as an entree to understanding that um, there were very strong customs about how people dressed, how women wore their hair in that world. In our world there used to be a lot of very strong customs and traditions of things that were right and not right. That's all kind of fading, I think. Um, there are still things you wouldn't do, um, places you w- Obviously somebody would, you would say, oh my gosh, you're completely inappropriately dressed. So, you know, in this world, um, the women in particular, if you were married, you could wear your hair, you were expected to wear. You were, maybe the phrase differently. You were entitled to wear your hair up. And you were entitled to be veiled. Okay? Now, in the first century, particularly as you moved closer to Rome, things were getting more liberal. And women were beginning to want to experience a little bit more freedom in the way that they dressed. Um, uh, It extended to clothing. If you were a married woman who had been caught in adultery, which is, that's pretty much the worst. So if you survived with being caught in adultery, you were not entitled to wear the traditional full-length stola anymore, the multi-layered, I'd call it a toga, but for a woman it was called a stola and that was all embroidered on the side and so forth and and um, you couldn't wear the veil anymore. So there was a lot of that and in Corinth it's a very Roman place in terms of law and architecture and so forth but it's it's a little bit further east and more conservative and so you know we think that part of what was happening in Corinth was that the women there were coming from different walks of life. So there would be married women, respectable married women, respectable in the eyes of the community, coming to worship and then if, presumably some did, there were slave women, um, some of whom might have been prostitutes. Um, all slave women were not prostitutes, but all prostitute, almost all, all prostitutes were slave women. They were all coming together in this one place. Now you see, if you were a slave woman, and there were bunches of them everywhere. you were not enti- first of all they, they weren 't entitled to be married in the same way that that a free person was entitled to be married, and they could not wear their hair up and they could not wear the veil and they 're all coming together in these little house churches of Christians, bringing all these customs and traditions and expectations. And with them and they have heard Paul preaching like he preached to the Galatians, we are all one in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And so probably what's happened is that some of the women are embracing this freedom. For some women, married ones, it might be taking some of this stuff down, right, as an expression of their freedom in Christ. And for those who were not entitled to put their hair up, it might be putting their hair up. So um, Paul is writing in response to a letter. I read last week Richard Hayes's, he writes a letter, he imagines a letter that Paul is responding to about this issue. And the result of it is this paragraph we're going to come to. So this is a paragraph that requires a lot of humility. You know some parts of Scripture are pretty plain John Wesley liked to talk about just the literal sense of something, just the plain sense of it. You can read it, you can understand it. This is not one of those places. When N.T. Wright says, Well, you know, when I first started this, I didn't understand this paragraph at all. But then he said as a commentary, he says, Now, and he's about 60 when he's writing by now, "I I think I understand it a little better. He doesn't really understand it. Richard Hayes, another fantastic Paul scholar says, this, if there was ever a passage in the Bible that taught you interpretational humility, this is it. Because it's difficult to understand. Paul says some odd things in it. It's, it's, it's a challenge. So taking all of that we will, we will read through it, I will have a few comments, and then we'll talk about a couple things we might take away from it. Okay? How's that? The next thing that he talks about after this is the Lord's Supper. And you're going to feel, oh, wow, this is much more straightforward. So, look at 11.2. I'm just going to check, make sure everything's cooking. Oh, everything is cooking. All right. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything, and for holding on to the turn the page. To the traditions, just as I passed them on to you. That's part of what the letter was getting at. We heard you, Paul. We're trying to keep these these. We're trying to live do this the way you taught us to do it. Then he says, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is is Christ. Now that word head can be translated different ways. One way is source, S-O-U-R-C-E, but also head. And it may be cheating a little bit um, to make it seem less about authority than it is about the source, but I think we'll see where he's taking this. If it were just about authority, there's it would directly contradict other places in this very same letter where Paul talks about the mutuality of marriage which we've done in here already and back in chapter 7 that that both the man and the woman the husband and the wife are to submit to one another. So he says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Now, in the story of Genesis how does it happen? In chapter 2 How does that happen? In chapter 2 it happens this way. God creates the man blowing on the dust of the earth. And then after, you know, the man names the animals, no suitable helper is found. That's one way to translate the Hebrew, not the only way. And so God is going to create a helper and does so from the man by going into the man and ripping out a... um, rib and fashion the woman the woman right and she becomes eve so then you have adam and eve man and woman male and female now sometimes i think christians look at that and they find in it a lot of stuff about men being hierarchically above women because of that and i think that's i think that's ridiculous i think that the where that is taking us Is linking us the reason it matters so much is because it's linking us at the end of the chapter to where the two man and woman now described as husband and wife become one flesh putting back together what was taken apart in order to fashion the woman and put back together so that they can reproduce because God has told them to be fruitful and multiply and neither of them can do that by themselves they have to come together in a sexual union to, to, to be fruitful and multiply. So, um, But in Paul's world, Paul's patriarchal Jewish world, Paul's patriarchal Greco-Roman world, I care where you want to look, it's patriarchal everywhere, top to the bottom, <coughs> they would tend to see some of those passages as supporting the patriarchy. Right? Of course they do. Course they do, but that it doesn't mean that that is how we need to read them. So, verse 4 Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And most men, still, I think, if it, like I wear in the wintertime a little cap, keep my bald head warm, you know. But if I come into the church, that, that cap is coming off, right? I, I take it off pretty easily when I step, even indoors, much less into a, in, into a worship service. In a worship service, no question, the hat comes off. So <clears throat> There's an example from our world. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her hair uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. There's all kinds of stuff wrapped up with this. The sexual part of flowing locks we talked about last week, the Brett girl and all that kind of stuff. But the thing to focus on is the difference between the respectable woman and the woman who is not respectable. The respectable woman and the prostitute, for example. And the respectable woman could wear, should wear her hair up. And so Paul is pushing the community toward... Respectability now, why would that be? Remember there are there are there's like a little two by two matrix that some of us used to use in business a lot everything everything in the world could be understood in terms of a two by two matrix right Lauren Yes, yes, everything so Paul wants us to do we should do whatever builds up the church and whatever is a good witness to Christ. And we should not do what tears down the the church or what is a poor witness to Christ. So like he says about tongue speaking that we'll get to in this letter, look, it's fine, it's great, but don't have any more than two or three of you do it or the world out there is going to think you're mad and you're not going to get the gospel even heard. Right, so, so sure. So Paul doesn't want to be scandalous. Plus he knows that to go on a couple of slides it's easy it happens now it's easy for Christians to sometimes think that they're only living in the age to come there are people who refuse medical treatment because they're convinced they only live in the age to come and their wounds have been healed and all this stuff is we we still we live when the age to come coexists with the pres- this the present age. And that coexistence is is inescapable. So so these new Christians have to hear Paul saying, yes, we are all free in Christ. There's neither Jew nor f- Greek slave nor free male nor female. But to say that God, that that is manifest in every part of life would be what's called an over-realized eschatology. It is to to imagine that everything is here. But there's a whole bunch of not yet stuff. Okay? Where it isn't manifest yet. So, verse 6. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or have her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Okay, Paul. Okay. Not clear. This is one of the ways so I think Richard Hayes says, you know, there are places, in Paul, where I would send it back to him and tell him to rewrite it <laughs> as an English teacher, Greek teacher. So, verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for a woman, but woman for man. And you're going, okay. This is, this is the patriarchy coming through. Because turn to Genesis chapter 1 with me. There are two creation stories. Not just the one about ripping the rib out, and you know sometimes when I teach Genesis two and God reaches down and takes the rib out of Adam and fashions the woman, I sometimes say, "Well, you know, Patty tells me God got it right the second time so um look at verse, <coughs> look at verse twenty seven of chapter one. This is the opening chapter this is the this is uh, James Earl Jones chapter. This is from the perspective of God. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. There is no sense in this that the man was created in the image of God and the woman was not or whatever direction you, you think you might want to go with this. So, you know, it puts us on the horns of a dilemma with Paul because there are some Christians who basically, though they may not say it this way, would view the Bible as basically God's dictation to where Paul is nothing more than a secretary. There's a book title I read once called God's Secretaries. Well, they're not God's secretaries. This is not God's dictation. It is inspired, but Paul, the man, comes through. These are words he wrote with whatever help he had around him. Whatever people were helping him, taking it down, written over a period of two months, who knows? We don't know any of that. And so you you have to let Paul come through and Paul comes out of a patriarchal culture. And so, but you see, but he knew. He knew that, is, that, that that is not, that is not, that's a part of this world that he's having to work in, yes, but it's not. For in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, Galatians 3.28. He knew that too. And so somehow he's holding, you know, intention All of these things. So after making a case in 7, 8, and 9 about, I I kind of think, um, the woman being in some way subordinate to man, he says, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Because of the angels. What does that have to do with anything here? What are we talking about? And of course, the woman's going, I guess she has authority over her own head because, I mean, she can put it up or leave it down. Right? The angel part is a first century deal. In the Jewish literature from the day, the picture of people coming together to worship God, the angels were watching. So this is sort of saying, well, you know, the angels are with us and you need to do this right. Because the angels are there. Don't forget the angels. We're not just on this on our own. Nevertheless, verse 11, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. They are created male and female, But they are they are complementary with the E. They're complementary. They must come to they're to be fruitful and multiply, and they can't do that unless they come together. They can't remain independent and free each other, free of each other and be fruitful and multiply. Okay? Nevertheless, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. And we're back to the mutuality thing again, where he's careful to include the second part. The arrow goes both ways. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. So the first half is Genesis 2, where God reaches down and pulls out a rib, but the second half of the sentence is the reality that man is born of women. It's women who do the childbearing. And then, of course, he says, I don't know. I wonder if he looked, if he's dictating this to somebody or something, and he's, he's gotten himself a bit twisted up, and he says, but everything comes from God. You know? Verse 13, so judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very few nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. Paul and the people of his world would tend to speak of things as being, well, this is just the way it is. We don't, we don't tend to think of, well, this is, this is the nature of things. We tend to say, well, well this is just the way it is. For Paul, it's, it's sort of in the order of, sort of in the created order, certain way things are, like, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Now that does sound like my stepfather, I have to say. Francis would endorse that completely. And when the Beatles were coming out with their long hair, and he, he was a new, relatively new stepfather, he said, not you guys. Okay. But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? Okay, let me just read that over. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. You don't... This gets back to last week. Here he's getting a little clearer. You women, you don't have long hair so that you can turn yourself into a sexual object. Long hair in their world, worn down, was very sexually alluring. It just was, and it wasn't seen, it wasn't proper. What was that Seinfeld episode where the one gal is walking down the street? You know the one I mean, with, right? She's walking down the street without a, without a top on, and Kramer has a car accident. <laughs> right? And Kramer's trying to defend himself, and Corp saying, look, look, I, I couldn't help myself, I couldn't help myself. Well, in the first century, Kramer would have wrecked his chariot if she had been walking down the street with the flowing locks of the Brett girl. You could say, well, that's weird. Okay, let's talk about dress. Muslim women cover their heads. The more traditional the Muslim family is, the more the Muslim woman covers her head. Where does that come from? Is that a modern innovation? Is that something they decided in the 19th century, the 18th century, the seventh? It's ancient. It's ancient. When I tell you that a proper Roman woman wore a veil, right? that is directly tied to the hijabs and the burqas and the other styles of, of headwear that Muslim women wear. It comes from the ancient world. This idea, this idea that a woman, you know, I could, let me put it in a positive sense where a woman did not want to be seen as a sexual object. She wanted to be taken on, interacted with on different, different terms. Now, because we're sinful, that isn't really how it works out in practice so much. But yes, and so Paul says that, of course, women aren't to be sexual objects. Nobody's to be an object. Nobody's to be an object. I don't want to be an object. I don't want to, you know... To be objectified in any way, I'm a person. You don't want to be objectified in any way. You're people, your persons, your your whole persons, body and soul, heart and mind. So, for Paul, he's saying, look, look, no. Even to the women who might be thinking, you know, I've had to follow these stupid traditions and put up with. What's the what? Where's my hair one again? Look at that. Can you imagine how long that takes to do? <laughs> how often could you could could you take it down and wash it, for goodness sakes? There are probably things crawling out of that. And <laughs> so so they express their freedom. They're letting their hair down. Oh that's a phrase we use, isn't it? Well, I'll say. Yeah. yeah, they just had three slaves to do it for them. So, um, no, no. But So Paul is saying, no, 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 no. This is, that's not what we're talking about here. It's not what we're talking about. I understand it, but it's not what we're talking about. Long hair is given to her as a covering. A covering of what? Her head. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice. This is what we're doing. Did Paul come... In his pastoral advice and instruction to the churches, was he seeking to start revolutions? No. Two by two. Do what builds up the church, do what is a good witness to others, avoid what tears down the church, avoid what is a poor witness to others. Period. Paragraph. That's his focus. Now, revolution would come from it sometimes centuries after the fact. I'm thinking of William Wilberforce and the end of uh, slavery in the British Empire and then in the Americas. But um, that, that, isn't, that isn't what Paul is about. And so he isn't there to upset all the social conventions of the day. They still live. They are living between the times. That's where they are. That's how it is. The age to come has come already, but not yet. And they have to manage all those tensions. And that's why I think in so so much of Paul's letters, you end up with, but but this, but this, and the two things that seem because Paul's trying to manage the tensions in this. We are all free in Christ. However, there are still social conventions of the day which, if ignored, would hinder the preaching of the gospel. Okay, so before I go into my next little slide, um, any questions? I have a summary slide about a few things you might take away from this. What can I possibly not help you with? Yes, Jerry. Yes? So why would he say that for a man to have long hair it is a disgrace to him? He's going by the Greek conventions, not Jesus' conventions. Plus I don't know that Jesus actually had such long hair, because we don't actually have a picture of Jesus. No, we have people's imaginings of what Jesus looked like. And and oftentimes he looks very Norwegian. (laughs) Right? Jesus, he, oftentimes in the paintings he looks very Norwe- Norwegian. Smooth, long, flowing hair, and he doesn't look. He does, you know, if you want to know what Jesus looked like, the closest we could probably get would be to go to the West Bank in Jerusalem and find a Palestinian person whose family has been there like forever. Because that's, 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 that's Jesus. Uh, Israel's um, uh, Jews today in Israel aren't it because there's so much European in, in um, Israelis. So, all the, all
1: the movies and all of the portraits and everything that predict all of the men in that age having long hair is just somebody's
0: imagination. Okay. Okay, I promised, Jerry, that I will do some more work on verse 14. Okay. I probably should have realized that I need to do more. Or I think we're going to find the key is that Paul is not working in the Jewish world. He's working in the Greco-Roman world. And if you look at all the statues of the Caesars, none of them have long hair. All their hair is cropped in some form and fashion then they wear the little gold thing. If you look at these things, whoop, not those things, right? The hair is all up, up, up. I could do the same thing with, with statues from the Greek world and the men's hair is all cropped. So, I, But I'll do some work on verse 14 and I'll try to bring you back an answer. How about that? Anything else I can't help with? <laughs> I told you, this section is, wow, but what, but what?
1: Scott, yes. So you went with me to my church and um, when I grew up there and I went to that church till I was 18, we had um, a little veil that you had to wear going in. It was like a—you could buy them in like a little plastic case, kind of the same case you'd keep your rosary in. Yes. Like that with a strap yes. on it, with two bobby pins. Yes. And your veil, so that you were like. Now you'd
0: veil. Yeah, you put this
1: on your head. You put this on your head. Yeah. Then it got smaller as the years went on. That you could get just a little. It became a doily. The of a doily. Size of the doily. Yeah. But I can remember many a time, and this wasn't just me. This was everybody. You get to church, oh my gosh, you had no veil. You'd be asking women who were going in the church, do you have a tissue? I'm sorry, do you have a tissue? Many a times I went in (laughs) with a tissue on my head, which seems so much worse than not having anything. But you look around the church, you know, from up in the balcony, you see all these tissues on the lake. That's the, Epis- they they
0: are That's the Episcopal church I grew up in in America. In different Episcopal churches when I was a kid, okay. there was a little box of doilies for women to put on to put on their head, and they all did. And this is where it all comes from. Oh, see, to cover provide, your head. We
1: didn't
0: provide free doilies. <laughs> well, we to round up a tissue. <laughs> I've been to Staten Island and I'm not surprised. But yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to step out there and say no. No, they had different wet modes of dress, but did every Jewish man walk around with the ombic on his head? I don't think so. No. But remember, he's write, is he writing a letter to Jerusalem? To Nazareth? He's writing a letter to Corinth, Greece. And um, so, but. Jerry's question I will research and Patty will remind me yes. to we do, do that.
1: Online yes. From and she is wondering what about the Shroud of Turin? How does that fit into this? The veil that the, I
0: guess the woman had. The Shroud of Turin is claimed to be the burial cloth Jesus is wrapped in. That's what that is. Oh. It doesn't have anything I think directly to do with this. It is the burial cloth that Jesus was wrapped in. Who and so what is this image of a man?
1: Pressed on his face as he was walking the stations of the cross. Yeah,
0: yeah. The There's man. one of the stations of the cross dedicated to her name, what? Francesca or something. But that's just that's just legend, tradition. I'm a Protestant. I don't know anything about it.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, another question I can't answer, please. Okay. So let's talk about this just for a minute. So, you know, when I come to the particularly hard ones, I, I will lean on people, scholars, who have made their lives at this, and, and they try to be helpful to teachers and preachers and the rest of it. Um, so, first of all, interpretational humility. I may not find an answer to Jerry's question. I may not find an answer we find the least bit suitable to, to Jerry's question. That's how it is. All we have is this. We don't have the other end. 2,000 years ago, Paul, um, in a world very different from our own. Okay? So, Richard Hayes says, few things, a couple of things to take away from this. If he, <laughs> were, if he were preaching it, the created distinction between men and women should be preserved. That's really, all, here, it's all through Paul, it's Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and, of course, we live in a time when some folks want to tear down those distinctions, right? Your gender is just something you choose to be. Again, it's, in my view, it's part of the kind of a focus on the self, the sort of self-worship. Um, and certainly in Scripture there would be no imagining of such a thing. And these, these cultures, the pagan culture, or the um, Jewish culture, or in the page of scriptures, no scriptures, no, none of that, so male and female, God created them in His image, Genesis 1.27. He said, so at the same time, the functional equality of men and women in worship and community leadership should be emphasized. We've seen some of that already. We will see more. Paul's going to get asked about women praying and prophesying. Okay? That's a very unusual role in these house churches for the women. Um, And so, part of the the tensions that are coming up in these communities, because the women are testing out all of these new roles, new rights, new responsibilities, and sometimes it may not go too well, because most women, sadly, were not educated past the second grade. So they might, you know, not be equipped to do some of the things that they want to be able to do, which is sad, right? But you see in Paul's letters, um, this, same, this same push through Phoebe and Junia and the rest of these women that we meet in, in Acts and in Paul's letters. Um, who are an active, visible part of the, Paul's work, and in the churches, generating questions about, okay, when the women are praying in public, when the women are prophesying in service, from which you know that women are doing these things, which was not a role. Women in, in the Jewish synagogues, the men and the women sat separately. There's no indication that that's something the Christians did. Okay, Sarah Rudin, the um, uh, she's the classicist. What she wants to talk about this issue is about the matrons and the prostitutes. And she says, look, this is about equality amongst these women. Paul is providing for the prostitutes a way to come to Christ and leave that behind in a very practical sense. The, the married women are to keep their hair up and the prostitutes, the slaves, who are from the very bottom of a very class-conscious cult, class culture, are to be able to put their hair up. Because, you know, in th- this world there were, there were fashion police. They would have festivals in which there were men who went around to make sure that women were dressed properly which would include prostitutes or other women who weren't entitled to be wearing the veil or were entitled to have their hair up to make sure that they weren't wearing the veil and that they didn't have their hair up. So it's Erie Rudin's point, which I think is a really good one, is that here you see that all the women are going to do the same thing, regardless of who they are in society. That seems to be very, very Jesus-like. And for Paul, there's this constant focus on the witness to Christ, this constant focus. He's not revolutionizing society. He wants the gospel to be preached, and he wants the gospel to be heard. And that means certain things. People can't think they're all crazy. They're scandalous enough as it is, because they say, not not... Embarrassed at all about it that your first loyalty is to Christ, not to your family. That's bad enough in the eyes of the society. But Paul, Paul doesn't, there are things that Paul just does a push on because he knows what his focus is. So, okay, friends, other thoughts or questions from anybody?
1: My head explodes when I hear this because of the churches that don't allow women to be involved. And and I just kind of say, how can that be when it's so plain in the New Testament that women should be involved? My head explodes.
0: There are certain verses, like verse, that you could go to that would lead you to say a woman shouldn't teach. And on the basis of that verse they don't. And I think that's really, I think that's, I think that's abusing Scripture. They would say, well I I hold a very, very high view of Scripture, so if that's what the verse says, that's what it says. And I say to myself, no, that's a low view of Scripture. Any monkey can read, well they probably can't read, (laughs) if they could, if there was, (laughs) anybody can read the sentence in English, it's first of all you're not reading it in Greek, but anybody can read it in English, and if that's as far as you're going to take this discussion, is because oh look what it says it, right there, just in print, in my English Bible, you're not you're not doing justice to the fullness of Scripture. So, and the starting point for me is why would God exclude half of humanity? from the teaching why would god say no Lauren you really can't do that you're really really good at it but no 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 you're a woman you can't do that no no i don't i i don't even would not even understand that and then i meet phoebe and junia and all these women that paul actually used in his own ministry and then you move on to try to take apart Paul's paragraphs about these things, right? And you you translate it over 2,000 years in time, and I still think some of it, honestly, is the desire in today's world of 2021 on the part of many to hang on to patriarchy.
1: (laughs) I (laughs) agree. Right? My head explodes to use your
2: phrase.
0: Okay. Yes, Lauren.
2: Basically, women being involved. In I the do church, remember that now. And and all the rest of it. And this was basically the main passage I worked from. Okay. All of chapter 11. Wow. Because, as Sarah Rudin puts it later in that book, it's like Paul is writing about the mechanisms in which growing the discipleship and growing an early church in a very unlikely place like Corinth would work. And so these are all so context-heavy, like what you just said is exactly the
0: back end of that book by Sarah Rudin. That's a good phrase. It's context-heavy. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't something here for us, because that's what Richard Hayes and N.T. Wright and Sarah Rudin and others try to help. But it's very context-heavy, because he isn't sitting down writing a theological essay on women in the church for all time. He is providing very, very practical advice and instruction to whom? To all of the Christian churches? No. He's writing to one church, set of church communities in one place called Corinth, Greece. The fact that they copied the letter and sent it on to others does not make it a letter written to be... It's just for everyone. It's not it. So it's very context heavy. And we don't even have the email they wrote to him, yeah. and so, so that's why interpretational humility, or as Richard Hayes, hermeneutical to humility, but because they have to use big words, those is academics. Interpretational humility, because that—that's why you can't know you—you—you you, you, you just can't say, "I've been doing this for a long time; it doesn't work." It's not sustainable to simply say, well, the Bible says that I believe it, as if that answers every question. It doesn't answer every question. It just opens up a thousand more questions. Explore the questions. Explore the questions that it raises. That's doing justice to Scripture. That's a high view of Scripture. Okay, well, anything else on on this? Or do I get to move on to something easier? No. Thanks
1: for the Scott ism. We, we had a person, John Shelley used to come, he has a whole book of Scott isms, the things that Scott says all <laughs> the time. And that is
0: So if, Lauren, when you wrote this paper, did you tackle verse 14 of why he tells the men to wear their hair short? I think it's just because Greek men did. It doesn't have to do with Jesus' hair. It's just Greek men.
2: Abram Swift would talk a lot about it is, so yeah, to include the men, it's like, well, yeah, if the Greek culture, that wasn't a respect to go back to the two-by-two two matrix. If in the Greek culture, respect wasn't gained by that, then it would be really odd. Keep
0: your hair that, short, because to be respected yeah. in the Greek culture, that's what you did.
2: And it only took up six words in a, yeah. a 15
0: I'll still get back to you, but so it's really not about Jesus, and it's it, it's not it's not a statement for all time. If a preacher wants to wear long hair, it's okay with me because it doesn't carry it doesn't carry the the sense of disrespect that it once did, especially with my stepfather. Okay, so anyway, so that was really good. Thank you, Lauren. Context heavy.
1: She got an A on that too. Yes. Of course he did. <laughs> yeah. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, have no other.: That
0: this is just what they do,
1: right. right. So if,
0: if you want to fight about this, I'm just telling you what we do everywhere. Yeah. OK? Right? Because he's founding all these little churches all up and down the Greek mainland, heading down, to, in which he did, he crossed over the Peloponnese and the rest of it. It's a gre- he isn't working in a Jewish world. That's something to remember about Paul. He's not working in a Jewish world. He's working in the Greco-Roman world. When he and Peter met and chose up who was going to do what, Peter took Jerusalem. That's the Jewish world. Paul took the Greco-Roman world because he comes out of the Greco-Roman world. He was born in Tarsus. So just as he was comfortable as a Pharisee, in the Jewish world, he was comfortable as a citizen of Rome in the Greco-Roman world. That's part of why I think God chose Paul. He was in that way probably kind of unique. Plus, he had his intellect and energy and the rest of it. Okay. Thank you for that, all that. That was very helpful. Thank you, Lauren. Okay. Now we'll go to verse 17. This is Paul again. <laughs> In the following directives, instruction maybe, I have no praise for you. I have nothing good to say about what we're about to begin talking about, he says. For your meetings do more harm than good. Yowza. When when Paul thinks you're on the wrong track, You do kind of he does he's not embarrassed to tell you and here's the thing Does that make him mean he's not mean it just matters so much to him This is everything Does it matter so much to us whether people come to know Jesus or not? It should It should be the most important thing it should be more important than a cure for cancer Is to come to know Christ for in Christ is everything. And outside Christ, there is nothing. But, you know, we grow up in churches, and churches filled, as I grew up in, with a lot of people who were, well, yeah, sure, we go, everybody goes, you know. We, we have to ask ourselves, does it really matter to us? Can we let Paul be fervent about this? Can we let him be hard on them? Because it matters. In the first place, he writes, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Chapter 1 of the letter. That unity, right? He wants unity. He doesn't care what... He's disgusted by the fact that some of them say, well, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Peter, I, uh, whatever. No. Unity, unity, unity. Verse 19. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. <laughs> In other words, some of them are different because, wow, they're placing themselves outside, way out of the river. So then when you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. Well, who do you think that is? Who brought a picnic basket full of goodies for the Lord's Supper? Now, the Lord's Supper at this time is pretty evidently an actual meal. So who's bringing a picnic basket that they filled up down at Eatsy's? Who's doing that? The poor people? The, rich people? the rich people are. The rich people are doing that. Of course they are. They might have even brought along a slave or two to attend to them while they are munching down on their delicious goodies. Do you think the poor people bring any kind of wonderful little picnic lunch like that? No. Poor people don't get solid meals. It, this is the world in which almost everybody because almost everybody was not rich. Almost everybody lived on a subsistence diet. It was a fight for calories. It was a fight to survive. How many of you have seen the movie Angela's Ashes? Uh, There's a scene in that movie I remember I'll remember the time I only saw the movie one time but there's a scene and I'll remember where Somehow this Irish family has gotten something that I would call like fried potatoes, and they've eaten all the potatoes, and then they're licking the inside of the bag. It's just, wow, that was human existence from almost the entire world until the middle of the 19th century. So, no, the poor people, it's the rich people. So then, verse 20. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go with your own private suppers. You pigs. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> For when you are eating, um, as a result, one person remains hungry and then another one gets drunk. They did go to Eatsy's because you can buy wine there. So now in their picnic basket, they brought wine. And so at communion, the Lord's Supper, this is my body, this is my blood, what's happening? The rich people are sitting down, they're gorging themselves, they're popping the top on their good you know, Italian reds and they're throwing those things back. And meanwhile, the hungry people are just sitting there looking at that and staying hungry. You know? Um, they probably didn't even eat at the same table. I, they might not have even shared the same room, because that's just the way it was. you know. Um, in, in, I can remember growing up in the deep south when there were a few families in, in town that had black maids or help, and they never ate with the family. They ate separately. They ate in a different room. That's the way it would be with the poor people here, and Paul's Paul's disgusted with it. You know, it's, it's one thing to not quite let me go past the pizza again here, um, to not quite understand or be. A, but 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 there are rich people just firmly grounded right here without any understanding of what's going on, what Paul's been talking about. <sighs> One person remains hungry and another one gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Hmm. You don't need much interpretational help with that, do you? Nah, that's easy to get. That's Jesus talking. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And then he's going to remind them of what this meal is. And this is the earliest recounting that we have of the communion liturgy. It will sound familiar. Now this letter is written in, I don't know, let's say 53 AD. So 23 years years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and already this liturgy is being shared, and the meal is being shared in Christian communities across the eastern end of the empire, wherever Paul or the others have gone, they have taught them about this meal. This is my body, this is, they have taught them about this. And when we come to take communion, we stand in line Beside all those people. Communion takes us out of the time and place that we're in, and it deposits us in a place alongside the entire body of Christ. Now, when we were up at St. Patrick's on Sunday, it was Mass, which means they they did communion. Patty went, she was baptized Roman Catholic. I did not go because the priest didn't offer an invitation. I in Pensacola we went to a Catholic church, and there the priest said, all are welcome here. And I did take communion at that Catholic Church. But I think the Catholics are are, are woefully mistaken um, about this. But I want to say one other thing. It is possible to think that somebody is wrong-headed about something and still respect them and their practice. So I think the Roman Catholic Church is wrong-headed when they deny communion to a Protestant like myself but I can still respect that and so even though I could have gone up and taken communion nobody knows who I am I did not so you don't you don't have to pretend somebody's right in order to respect what they say you can still respect them even if you think that they're wrong because what we're all brothers and sisters in Christ And someday they're going to be surprised when they meet Jesus and Paul. And he says, why didn't you let Scott take communion? Why why didn't you invite Scott to come to communion?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yes. uh, Linda Waldo commented that this reminded her of the story of Lazarus and the rich man.
0: Well, you see, so Jesus told the parable. Lazarus and the rich man. So in that parable, as you may remember, there's a rich man who goes in and out of his gate every day completely oblivious to this (sighs) utterly disgusting, sore-covered, starved beggar named Lazarus. So awful that the dogs would come up and lick his sores. I mean, the way Jesus told the parable, it's as bad as bad. And every day the rich man is coming in and out totally oblivious. Is that rich man Jewish? Yes he is. Does he think that he's going to rest in the arms of Abraham when he gets to the other side? Yes he does. But when he gets to the other side who's resting in the arms of Abraham? Himself? No it's Lazarus. Right? Why did Jesus tell that parable? It's not a parable about the afterlife. It's a parable about don't be blind to the poor. Don't despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing. Right? Because in some ways, what's happening at Corinth is worse than is worth simply ignoring a poor person that, you don't, that you're completely blind to. Here, they're actively doing it. They're actively sitting down, opening their Etsy's boxes, and having a big old fat lunch, you know, while the hungrier is looking at it. They, they, don't, they never get a meal like that. The Lord's Supper for the poor at this time was perhaps, should have been, probably was many times, the one good meal they got all week. He says, so, go back to verse 22. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Verse 23. For I have received from the Lord... That's Paul's shorthand, for I'm I'm not making this up. This isn't me. This, This is coming from Jesus. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Then Paul writes in verse 26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Comes what? Comes again. We will do communion until Jesus returns. You know, I read a one, one quote among many, from Queen Elizabeth. She, she said she really hoped that Jesus would return in her lifetime. And her reason was that she wanted to take her crown and lay it at Jesus' feet. She was a very devout, serious, on-purpose Christian. Okay? Verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. He wants them to take this seriously. People have done some funny things with this. I remember my mother would sometimes not go forward for communion because I don't know what she felt she had done that week, but she felt she was like unworthy. Well, if unworthy in the sense of being worthy is what it takes, to drink the cup. Well, none of us would be able to do it. That's not what Paul's talking about. This is all, again, what's the context of this? These awful abuses of the Lord's Supper. And those who were showing up with the eatsy baskets and enjoying their big sumptuous meal while the other members of the community were starving or just kind of staring at them, We'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Why? Because it's getting to the sinning against the very the very the very essence of how Jesus of what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. Jesus humbled himself, took on human form, was obedient, right? Humility is something that we we should learn from Jesus, and the rich people here are not doing it. Verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Hmm. You know, strive to live with a clean heart. Not just, not just on the days we take communion, but, but on the rest of the week. Strive to live with a clean heart. Strive to live with clean hands. The world is uh, wanting to pull us into so much ugliness and revenge and division and hatred. and um, We have to step back from all that and just not allow ourselves to be pulled into any of that but strive to live with a clean heart and to live with clean hands. And he says, now, this is, the, this is the surprising part that, you know, I don't think many people today would know what to do with. I'm not sure I do. He says, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. In other words, have died. Because what? they are abusing the Lord's Supper. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Be self-critical. I don't know what to make of the, you know, maybe, um, of the, you know, that their illnesses are because they're abusing the supper, but We are to live clean lives and have clean hearts. Verse 32, Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined, so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. It's like a parental thing. A parent-child thing is one of the best metaphors, I think, for reading scripture. Between God and his people, between Jesus and us, um, even Paul sometimes and the people in these churches. So, sure, we all know that we need to discipline our kids. Right? We don't want to raise our kids with, what did they call it in that legal case? Affluenza? Right? No, we want our kids to grow up disciplined. Um, we, so we, we we can't be afraid of disciplining our kids if, if they are going to learn right from wrong and grow up to be um, better people um, and that is how God is with us it is how Paul is with us look how he starts the paragraph look back to verse 17 he lays it on him read the first couple paragraphs in Galatians he lays it on him why does he do it? because he loves them and he wants them to come to Christ to remain with Christ in Christ and to be with Christ. And so he says in verse 33, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Which does imply that they might even be eating in separate rooms, the rich and the poor. Because that's the way it's done in the outside. right? The rich and the poor would never eat together outside the walls of these Christian homes that are supposed to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. Don't bring those picnic baskets stuffed with all kind of things because you're hungry. Eat something at home and then come here and be part of the fellowship. Eat together. So that when you meet together it may not result in judgment. On whom? On you, you rich people. With your eatsy baskets. And then he says, and when I come, and he does return to Corinth, I will give further directions. This is big subject much easier to sort of make your way through this even if there's a couple head-scratching places in it Um, but there are some bad things happening in 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 Corinth and there's when we get a little further on we'll we'll talk really about well why is it that Corinth is experiencing so many of these problems what is the underlying reason for it but anyway, um, I see it's about 1.15. So if you have questions about this portion here, just bring them next week and we'll start with that. I will solicit those at the beginning. and we'll, We can talk about communion if you would like to. Anything like that? Okay. Let's pray. Gracious Lord. Hmm. Sometimes oh, Paul's pretty easy to hear. We can bring it forward to our lives and our world and our church pretty easily. Other times, not so at all. But we pray that you will encourage us and strengthen us, help us to understand that you have given us this letter. It is inspired by you, it is sacred, and in a way no other writings are. The words are God-breathed. They're not dictation, but they are God-breathed in that you, you lifted up Paul. And he wrote letters that have been shared by Christians for almost 2,000 years. Help us to read them, to appreciate them, and to become better readers For in this we will become ever truer disciples of Jesus. And that's our goal. That's what we want. All this we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.